You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to the first episode of the third series of Sweden in Focus, the locals' weekly look back at what's been happening in the news in Sweden. I'm your host, Paul O'Mahony, and on this week's show, we're going to talk mostly about the riots that raged in several Swedish cities over the Easter weekend. And I'll be speaking to journalist Bilan Osman about a rise in anti-Muslim sentiment. And here in the studio, we'll be discussing what caused the riots, who was involved in them, and what's likely to happen next. And if you like the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you could help us reach more listeners by rating the show and or leave a review. Now with me today to talk about the riots and a few other stories, I have the locals James Savage here in Stockholm and in Malmö, Becky Waterton and Richard Orange. How are you all? Good, thanks. Very well. Yeah, happy to be back so soon. Yeah, well, ex- indeed. Be- before we proceed, I should note that we hadn't planned to launch the third series until mid-May, but we're back. Uh, why are we back? There's just been so much news. <laughs> exactly. So much to talk about. We couldn't we we couldn't wait that long. You're stuck with us at least until the summer when I promise we will take a break. Oh, don't make any promises you can't keep. We enjoy speaking to each, to each other so, so much that we just wanted to be here. Maybe we should just have these conversations anyway, but not have a microphone in our faces the whole time. <laughs> yeah, we can do. I'll just, I'll just, I can just call you on your summer holidays, Becky. <laughs> yeah, yeah, why not? Before we get into the week's main story, we're going to briefly cover some of the other big stories of the week, including the latest on Sweden's seemingly unrelenting march towards NATO membership, a parliamentary vote on new work permit rules... But we're going to start with a guaranteed crowd pleaser, the spring budget. (laughs) But before everyone turns off the podcast, I'd stress that the strange times we're living in have made this a more interesting budget than usual. First of all, let's look at what's actually in the budget. Richard. Well, by far the biggest ticket number was the extra money that's required to receive um, the refugees coming from Ukraine, which was 9.8 billion kroner. And of that, 500 million will go towards municipalities to help them handle... The, the, the reception needed to give to the um, refugees as they arrive. And and the second, perhaps one of the second biggest things was 800 million kroner that went to civil defence, boosting Sweden's civil defence capabilities. So I think about 100 million of that is going towards renovating the bomb shelters, which have we've talked about in at least two previous podcast episodes is, are in pretty bad condition. And a lot of the rest of it is also, again, going to municipalities to help them build up their civil defence capabilities, which is kind of crucial part of, of resistance, as we've seen in, in, in places like mm. Mariupol, where, you know, the, the, the more food you've got stored in a city, the more resistant you, you can be in the case of an attack. 
And another big ticket one went on healthcare, which was 500 million, which particularly was aimed at recruiting more nurses. And that's as a result of the, the extra costs that came in during as a result of the pandemic and, and, and trying to deal with the shortfall in, in um, trying to bring down waiting times and also to finance a fourth vaccine dose for pretty much everyone, I think. So these are these are fairly major amendments. Usually the spring budget makes some small changes to the to the main sort of autumn budget. But this is these are fairly wholesale changes. Um, and is it likely to be approved, James? Well, it's not at all certain it will pass in its entirety. I think what you've got to remember here is two things. First of all, that the government now consists of the Social Democrats alone and that we have an election coming up in September. So the government effectively needs the support of the centre party, the Greens and the left party to get this budget through. And that's assuming, well, at least it will do if the other side can stay united around a single proposal of its own. That's to say the the moderates, the Sweden Democrats, the Christian Democrats and the Liberals, if they can in some way, shape or form coalesce around an alternative solution, then that will get through. So the centre party and the Greens right now are are talking, they're keeping their cars close to their chest. The the centre party is is particularly expressing doubts over the government's proposals for pensions, which it's it's fairly technical stuff, but basically it's about how to implement a raise in pensions for the poorest pensioners. So it's not entirely clear that the Social Democrats therefore will get the support that they need to, to get this budget through. However, most of these things that we've been talking about will probably, in one way, shape or form, get passed. So the, the actual differences in what we will see in the in, in the budget that gets through Parliament will probably not be huge. All of this kind of traces back to Magdalena Anderson being being elected as Prime Minister because this this whole pension thing was like a bone thrown to to the left party who who said that it had to be in their budget, which then got voted down by the opposition and now kind of to say thanks for for letting Magdalene Anderson in the Social Democrats are kind of trying to shove it into the spring amendment budget now. So it's all kind of traces back to November last year, really. A story we've covered several times already on this podcast is Sweden's decision on whether to join NATO. And there have been a couple of interesting developments there this week. The Social Democrats are going to announce their decision in May, but the country's biggest newspaper, Aftonbladet, came out this week and said Sweden should join the military alliance. Can you explain why that's significant, James? Yes. So Aftonbladet is not only Sweden's largest circulation newspaper, its opinion section is effectively an arm of the broader labour movement. That's to say the Social Democrats' broader movement. The chief leader writer for Aftonbladet is appointed by LO, which is the biggest union organisation, or rather they have a veto over over his or her appointment. Um, So Anders Lindbay, the chief leader writer who wrote this article, was in some sense appointed by LO which is affiliated with the Social Democratic Party. So he's not just a Social Democratic leaning (laughs) leader writer. He is a a Social Democrat. So the fact that he has now said that Sweden should join NATO, after many years of promoting the exact opposite view, is an indication that the whole Labour movement is moving very, very quickly over towards a pro-NATO approach. And, you know, this this mirrors what's happening at the highest levels of government. It shows that Sweden and the Social Democratic Party is doing one of these things that it periodically does, where it sort of completely changes its view all at once. And everybody associated with the Social Democratic Party and Swedish society in general 
changes their view on a quite fundamental issue. I don't think this changes what's going to happen with NATO in the sense that I think it was already pretty clear that the leadership of the Social Democrats and the government were moving in that direction anyway. But I think it cements that societal shift that we've seen. Even this morning, there was a new poll saying that for the first time, a majority of Swedes are pro-NATO membership. Granted, it's only 51%, but that's still, last week it was 45 and I think it was something like it was something like 68% said that if Finland joined, then Sweden should join. Yeah. And the proportion against is tiny because it's not like 51% are in favour and 49% are against. That includes don't knows. Yeah, 30% are against. And I think, yeah, the extra 20 something were don't know. Exactly. So it's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's actually quite a significant margin in favour of, of, of joining NATO if you, if you exclude the don't knows. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's a massive change. And, and also today, the Social Democrats have, have um, you can see that, 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 that ex- the whole process is accelerating with their bringing back the, the date for when the government will, will come out with its, its sort of assessment of the security situation. It's been brought back two weeks till, I think, mid-May from the end of May. And the Social Democrats have said when they're holding these digital meetings in the party, they've now set dates, which I think is also mid-May. So, so, so there's definitely, you can see that the process is accelerating in Sweden as well. Yeah. And we're seeing some pressure on the Finnish side. I saw, I saw we, report, we were reporting on it Thursday. We were reporting that there's some pressure on the Finnish side for Sweden and um, Finland to join NATO at the same time, mm. um, rather, than, rather than send in applications at different, uh, at different times. It's been kind of assumed that maybe Sweden would send in an application a bit later. But it looks like there, there might be moves towards some kind of coordination so they do it simultaneously. Also this week, um, Sweden's parliament voted to approve a new work permit law that's set to come into force on June 1st. What are the main points in uh, this new law, Becky? Yeah, so essentially the law has been kind of branded as this kind of cut down on talent deportations, kompetensutvisninger. Uh, like the story we were talking about a few weeks ago with Shona, who um, she is an Australian professional marketing professional, and she got deported because of a very basic admin error. So that's a classic example of a talent deportation. And this this law is kind of meant to to protect against that, to stop that from happening as much. So I think the exact text of the law says that people will no longer be deported for minor errors in their, in their documentation, and that also the migration agency should be able to look at the kind of circumstances around an error and kind of make a judgment based on that. And I was interested that the lawyer from the Swedish Trade Federation, she seemed to, the Confederation for Swedish Enterprise, Amelie Berg, who we spoke to, she, she seemed to think that it would help. Yeah. She thought that, she, and she said that the, the rulings that had requested people to, the migration agency to be more lenient had already decreased the amount of talent deportation. So maybe we we see the cases and we report on them for the local, but we don't see the kind of overall numbers. And she seemed to think that they had declined in recent years. Yeah. And she thought this would make it decline even even more. But there's, I mean, there's more stuff in the law as well. So there's a, there's a new visa, it's called a talent visa for, I think they also described it as some highly educated professionals. It'll be easier for them to come to Sweden. There's a, there's a rule change that... So previously, you could come to Sweden on a work permit if you had a job offer, meaning you didn't have to have signed a contract. But now you have to have a signed job contract with like a, a date of that you're starting and that kind of stuff, which um, could is obviously going to make it more difficult because I think not some of the politicians talking about this in Parliament. I think it was, uh, I think one of the centre party politicians was saying that that's going to make it more difficult because 
how do you know what start date you should put on a contract if you don't know how long the application process to get the work permit is going to be? So that also has raised a few new issues there, which which uh, Amelie Berry also mentioned. She said that it's difficult in practice, it's not in line with regular procedures, and it doesn't really fit legal requirements that currently exist. So that's going to make it more difficult. So it's, it's kind of swings and roundabouts, really. Some aspects of this law are positive for immigrants wanting to work in Sweden, and some aspects are negative. It really depends kind of who you are, why you, what your job is that you're applying for, and kind of your circumstances around arriving. This show is made possible by members of The Local. It takes time and resources to produce independent journalism, and we'd like to thank everybody who supports us through membership. If you're not yet a member, I'd urge you to check out our excellent introductory offer for Sweden in Focus listeners at thelocal.se forward slash podcast offer. The Easter weekend in Sweden is normally a sleepy enough affair with newspapers scrambling to cover stories about how many eggs are consumed. But this year was very different as serious riots took place in several Swedish cities. James, can you give us some background on why and where these riots happened? Right, so the spark for these riots was a visit from a far-right Danish provocateur, I think is the best description of him, called Rasmus Paludan, who visited several Swedish towns. He went to Linköping, Jönköping, Norrköping, Malmö, Örebro and Stockholm. And he went to areas where immigrants live, especially Muslim immigrants, and he burned copies of the Quran. This this provoked riots, and that was clearly his intention. Yeah, he's been doing this in Denmark for years. This is his this is his thing. Yeah, and he's not and not only in Denmark, he's gone to other parts of Europe. He has been banned from various countries, been turned away from Belgium, he's been turned away from France. He has previously been turned away from Sweden. But uh, he t- it turned out that he was a Swedish citizen because his father is Swedish. So he w- the, so the Swedes had to let him in. So this has created, well, first of all, a huge amount of violence uh, in Swedish cities. 26 police officers were injured. Uh, numerous police cars and private cars have been burned out. And, you know, it's created huge tensions in some of these areas that are already the areas of great deprivation, um, at least by Swedish standards and, um, and, and social tensions. And what do we know about the rioters? I mean, you mentioned how many police officers were injured and um, I've heard interviews with police spokespeople saying they've never experienced this sort of level of violence before. Who's, who's behind the violence? Well, it's a mixed picture. Um, so 40 people have been arrested or charged. We're talking about a relatively small number of rioters in, you know, given the populations of these areas, you know, a few hundred in each case and sometimes fewer. And the the police and the government have pointed the finger at organised criminal gangs in in these areas. Now, these criminal gangs, we know they've been reported on a lot in in, in recent years for causing violence and and, drug dealing and all that kind of thing. Although, obviously, the nature of these criminal gangs in these areas makes it hard to define, you know, who's, who's a gang member and who isn't. They're sort of um, broad networks that recruit quite a lot of young people. So it's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to exactly say, you know, exactly in, in every case who, who's a gang member and who's not. But certainly it seems that criminal gangs were involved at some level. In 2020, which is the last time that it wasn't Rasmus Paladin, but it was one of his associates came into Mac because he was not allowed in the country. But I was there in near where I live and the police officer that I saw a police officer sort of surrounded by a crowd of sort of angry people from Rosengord who all were saying look here's a picture of police protecting this man who's burning the Quran and and that was what was riling them up and the, the police were actually quite good sort of at explaining 
I was actually extremely impressed by how the police said, no, we are, we don't support him, but, you know, we are as angry as you are that this person is destroying our city, you know, trying to create this sense of togetherness. Yeah. And, and they were really good at, at, at doing that. And, and but, but it was that, it was those pictures of police people protecting him as he burned the Quran that, mm. that, that got people wound up. I think it's so important to remember in this, and it's, this isn't, this, it sounds like a cliche, but it's really important to remember that most of the people in these areas that Rasmus Paladin is trying to target, uh, even if he's sometimes being moved away from them, most of the people in these areas think that the rioters are idiots or worse. You see this again and again and again. They dislike Paladin. Of course they do. And, you know, understandably so. But they also are really frustrated and cross with the, with, with the people who are rioting. The, the debate's obviously whether there should be a law against burning the Quran or whether, or whether you can just apply the existing laws more, more strongly. I mean, uh, I mean, the existing law is Hets mot folk group, which literally means like hatred towards groups of like folk group is like a ethnic, ethnic groups group, yeah. yeah so that's why a judge has previously said that burning a quran isn't heads mot folk group because muslims isn't a folk group it's a religion it's very difficult because it's it, you know ultimately a religion is a set of beliefs and a set of you know a, a, on one level a set of opinions and it's very dangerous when you start regulating what people can and cannot mm-hmm. say in criticism of a set of beliefs and opinions. So in a democracy, it's really, really important to be careful about how you legislate here. But there has been talk now of to expand the definition of Hetzmut Volkgrupp um, uh, to cover incitement against religious groups because there's there's a difference also between criticism and and uh, criticism and incitement and and, and yeah. then very much like many things in law it depends on the intent of the person who is doing whatever they're doing you know whether it's burning a quran or saying something so there's a discussion now about whether that should you know whether whether that law should, whether the definition of that law should be should be expanded to cover this We'll return to this discussion soon, but first we're going to take a break to listen to a chat I had with Bilan Osman, a reporter with a long track record of covering racism and far-right movements in Sweden. She currently writes for the Doggins Etc. newspaper and has previously worked for the Anti-Racism Expo magazine, as well as the daily Svenska Dagbladet. Let's hear what she had to say about the riots and an upsurge in anti-Muslim sentiment. Welcome to Sweden in Focus. Thank you. Now, you've written that Rasmus Paladin succeeded in his plan to portray Muslims as a domestic enemy with a long-term view to purge them from Sweden. Can you explain why you think he has succeeded? Not necessarily Paladin himself. I think as him as uh, some kind of character, you can call it that. Uh, Paladin is a right-wing extremist. Uh, Stram Kush is a right-wing party. The goal, as you mentioned uh, these years has to uh, has been to ethnic cleanse Denmark from from Muslims and non-Western people uh, and that's a recipe for genocide uh, and when you look at the history and how uh, genocide policies was formed one of the these steps were to create an enemy Paludan Astram Kush has pointed out uh, Muslims as the enemy an enemy not only against like Denmark and Sweden but but a threat to the whole Western civilization so in, in some way, he actually, uh, and Stormkush actually succeeded. These last days have been 
I have seen anti-Muslim uh, resentments in a way I've not seen in, in many years in Sweden. Uh, in my feed, I've seen former friends, school teachers, classmates that are writing the most uh, awful things about Muslims. And I don't think that people were like anti-racist and then Paludan came along and they kind of woke up and decided to hate Muslims. If anything, uh, Paludan has pointed out how how ugly Islamophobia is in Sweden and that we have a lot of work to do. You as a black Muslim woman who wears a hijab, do you face a lot of personal abuse? Yeah, of course. Uh, I think uh, I share the same personal experience as uh, many people that not only wear uh, yeah, hijab, but also are a black at the same time. Uh, and uh, if you are a Muslim woman, uh, then it's uh, it's a bit it's a bit harder harder in the society because you know, it's it's like going around with a big sign that says I am Muslim. In that way, we become like a target of all these anti-Muslim mm. sentiments. Uh, so, so of course, yeah. How have you seen that other Muslims in Sweden have reacted to um, Paludin's Koran burning tour of Sweden? Yeah, that's that's of course a hard question to to answer. Uh, but I imagine that uh, if I look around, I have seen different reactions. I imagine that Muslim reacted the same way that. Uh, as everyone else. Uh, mm. Some people might think that Paludan deserved the rocks, that uh, police uh, deserved the, the violence. Of course, there are those kind of Muslims. Uh, other may think that burning the Quran is wrong, but that mm. uh, doesn't justify violence. Some don't even care or maybe haven't even read about all of this. And I have seen all of that even uh, when I talk with close friends or, or family, there's different emotions, different values about and different beliefs in, uh, in, in the Muslim group. Yeah, and that sort of leads into my next question and what you were talking about. Muslims being seen as a homogenous group. Are you sort of frustrated by the fact that Muslims are often expected to distance themselves from acts committed by people with whom they just happen to share a religion, or in this case, riots that appear to have been coordinated by criminal gangs, according to the prime minister and the police? Yeah, of course. Um, but I'm also actually kind of used to it. Um, some some people genuinely believe that being Muslim is an ethnicity. Uh, that we are all like descended from Agrabah or something. And as I said, it's like 23% of the world's uh, population. Mm. I have more in common with my uh, atheist Swedish neighbor than I have with a Muslim in another country. And and at the same time, like Muslims have been a part of Europe in, in centuries. Uh, and I could talk forever about how the same narrative about Muslims as being violent and misogynist and barbaric has been around since the Middle Ages. This is a part of like not only Swedish culture, but uh, uh, the the way Muslims have been portrayed in in Europe in, in centuries. Um, and I don't think like I don't think that Islamophobia will magically like disappear if more Muslims just say that they are against violence. Like this is not mm. a conflict between democracy and. Muslims, it's a it's a conflict between 
democracy and anti-democracy uh, and and muslims have have like different opinions in in, in that question also so yeah it, it is frustrating and at the same time i think that we have to handle these kind of questions uh, like as long as those kind of ideas about muslims still exist we will never find a way to to coexist uh, as a society and that's something we have to do uh, despite mm. of everything we have to coexist the alternative that uh, that we don't find ways to coexist is something that the history knows uh, all too well one thing we haven't talked too much about is what the police have been saying about how brutal these attacks on them were, how the, the rioters were out to kill them and that organised criminals were behind this and that, you know, it wasn't about religion as such. It was just an excuse for these organised criminals to target them. I'm a bit sceptical of that interpretation because I, I just think that, yes, it, people... I'm sure have been involved in the riots who are criminals who have criminal backgrounds who are kind of hoodlums and violent people, violent youth who are up to no good. But but wouldn't you expect that to be the case? And it seems to me unlikely that it's it, it's sort of ordered by some kind of gang kingpin. At the same time, it doesn't necessarily follow that the people who are doing this are themselves particularly devout or are personally offended to any great extent by Haludan, that there is more of a general dissatisfaction with society and this is the spark that lit the flame. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I, th- I think if there is a sort of reaction to the, the sort of desecration or burning of the Quran, I think it's, it's they see it as them attacking us. You know, here is Swedish society allowing this insult to us as people who have a background in Palestine or Iraq or Syria. You know, it's, so, so I don't think they're offended from a religious point of view, but maybe they are from a sort of community point of view. They take it as a kind of insult to that section of society. Let's remember who this guy is. This guy, you know, Rasmus Paladan, we haven't really spoken much about him, but he is, you know, a hate preacher. He's got convictions for incitement to racial hatred. He's he's not making a kind of an obtuse religious point. He is making an anti-immigrant hateful point that's directed at people of immigrant backgrounds living in Sweden and other parts of Europe. So I think we've got to see, you know, beyond the religion as well. It's not unimportant, but you've got to see beyond that to his overall message and see that as part of the background to why people see him as, as a threat and as, as an enemy in lots of parts of Sweden. Is Paladin planning to run more of these demonstrations and will, will the police allow a new round of demonstrations to go ahead? Um, well, he's he's announced that he wants to stand in the coming election, but I don't know if that he will succeed in that. But if he does, I mean, presumably that would mean demonstrations as often as he can throughout the election campaign, which could have a big impact on the sort of atmosphere of the campaign. I know that in, in Denmark, in the last two Danish elections, Paladin's just very existence has sort of added a, another dimension to, to the election campaigns. And if that happens in Sweden, then we're going to be hearing a lot more about him. If you've been enjoying the show and are not yet a member, please consider supporting The Local's independent journalism by heading over to thelocal.se forward slash podcast offer, where a subscription costs just 10 kroner for the first month. And that's all we've got time for on this week's episode. Thank you for listening to Sweden in Focus. And please do give us a rating or a review if you can. It really does help a lot. And thank you too to my guests, James Savage, Becky Waterton, Richard Orange and Bilan Osman. Until next time, take care.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.